0: got attacked i probably spent two to three months where i was just waking up to drink to oblivion and i think it just like the reality of my situation was just real right it was just like there was no hiding from it and i was i was physically broken i was mentally broken i was you know i'd been in and out of hospital with liver related illnesses because the extent that i was drinking and the doctors were like you know the last time i went in they were just like you're not well, man. You're not. Gonna, you're not going to be here in a year if you continue to do what you're doing.
1: Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Tom Gosney. Tom is the founder of Gosney, one of the market leading pizza oven brands and maker of the Rockbox, the world's first portable home pizza oven. What started as a shabby handmade pizza oven in Tom's own backyard has since grown into a business that today is valued at over $120 million. Before Tom became a groundbreaking product designer and entrepreneur, he was a lost kid struggling with a learning disability. The one thing Tom felt good at as a teenager was drinking and being wild, which led him down a harrowing road of addiction and trauma before he was even 21. Today, Tom is an inspiring example of how, even in the depths of substance abuse, a person can completely turn their life around. My full conversation with Tom Gosney right after this quick break.
0: your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash business gold card.
1: Tom Gosney, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, man. Well, you have created an amazing brand that's, you know, now valued at nine figures, and you've designed and created this revolutionary product that's changing restaurants, changing home kitchens around the world. But to me, as fascinating as the story of the success of your business is your upbringing and how you got to where you are
0: today. So can you share what the story was of your early life? Yeah, of course, man. Um, so I was born into, a, born into a really loving, caring family, um, lived on the south coast of England in quite a rural Beautiful but quite sleepy town. And, you know, I couldn't have wanted for anything more as a young kid. We lived in a nice area. I had great neighbors. We played as little kids. I think, you know, going to school was where the initial challenges in my life began. I, you know, I'm quite dyslexic. And so when I went to school, I went to a private school in the UK. It was a really good school. My parents sort of worked hard to send me there. But I just, I really didn't flourish in the classroom environment. I found it really difficult to concentrate. I, you know, I i didn't interact like the other children in the class. And I think 30 odd years ago, dyslexia wasn't as well known as it is today, obviously. And, and the education system change, has changed somewhat now. So... Going to school was like I think a major frustration for me. I didn't understand why I wasn't flourishing like the other kids and doing as well in the as the other kids, and um, and like lightly got bullied when I was like really young, like maybe seven, seven, six or seven years old. And I think that combination of the two, the sort of lack of self esteem through not being brilliant in school, and then being like lightly bullied, really impacted me, my my mental health and my well being. And it's when I started to. Um, to essentially act out. And you know, acting out with negative behaviors got me attention with other other kids in the in the in the school and I started to become more popular. And I think that desire for attention, right? And and popularity was what started to lead because I wasn't, you know, winning in school. So and then that just it got progressively worse. Like my behavior, as I got more and more attention for negative behaviour, my behaviour got worse. Everything got leveled up a little bit. And then by the time I'd left my first school at the age of sort of 12 or 13 I'd become like a really really naughty kid and it was I became someone that I truly wasn't so I, I never felt at home anywhere and I built that persona around misbehaving and then when I found a group of lads outside of school that were doing drugs you know instantly it gave me comfort and I felt right at home right it was just like those insecurities and those elements of my life were filled and I i found like essentially it felt like I found my purpose at the age of 13 or 14 found smoking weed found a group of lads that were also naughty and we like bonded I had community and I felt like I'd found found my crew right and like I said we were living in a quite a rural area and smoking weed quite quickly escalated on to, to much harder drugs and probably by the age of like 14 or 15 we were taking class A drugs and then it became it was just full force, right? It became, you know, destructive really, really quickly. And, you know, we were sort of living for getting messed right up and, and going out and going wild. And um and that was sort of the beginning of my journey into drug addiction and alcoholism.
1: You talk about that, you know, your parents worked really hard to put you into private school, that you were brought up in, you know, generally uh, a strong family. How aware was your family around all of this?
0: Yeah. So my parents clearly knew, um, you know, when I was entering into my early teenage years that there was like changes in my behavior. Right. And I think one of the biggest factors to this were literally when I found drugs and when I found these group of guys that I hang out with, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you build this bravado, you build this external persona that like this is who I am. Who the fuck are you? Like, stop talking to me like that. Do you know all that stuff? And, and so, you know, there was this like, you know, false sense of confidence as a young guy that I've found my people. You're not my fucking family. Do you know, it's like this, this, it's like rebellious nature just purely through frustration low self-esteem all of that stuff and you know mama trying to talk to me about smoking about smoking weed she knew i was doing it and i'd be like i'm just normal i'm a normal kid what are you going on about just get off my back you know and it creates this divide and actually even through to when i went to treatment and went to rehab like i had absolutely zero comprehension of the severity of the denial that I went through around my addiction and I hadn't even really started heating up at that point with my mum like mum was like it's not normal to smoke it's not normal to smoke weed I, th- I think this like mum trying to like educate me and protect me just drove a divide right and then you know my dad drank a little bit when we were younger and so there was there was a natural divide between me and my dad's um you know like addiction runs through the family from my dad's side and my dad was never a bad dad he was a loving caring brilliant dad but alcohol was present right always and it affected the way that he interacted um, and stuff like that and so I think that was really real right like you get to the point where you're like 13 14 and like you're not going to tell me not to drink Like, I've been around drink in the house since I was a kid and so that just drove a divide and I think I think as soon as the divide between me and my family started, it was just like there was no turning back, right? Like, behavior went wild, drug taking escalated. I was certainly not listening to anyone at home that would try and give me guidance or mentorship or anything like that, right? And so it just became more and more in-depth and more real and more, you know, much more destructive.
1: Tom's substance abuse became a toxic cycle. He got expelled from multiple secondary schools and kicked out of college as well. He started using Class A drugs every day and took on an identity of being a wild partier that he was proud of. He says that it felt like something of a badge of honor as a teen. And so for Tom, the only way he was going to break his addiction was a truly jarring and life-changing wake-up call.
0: I got scared once, I got into trouble, I got scared with the police. You know, it was more serious than any other times that I've been in trouble with the police before and it scared me and you know, for the first time ever, I was like, right, I'm going to, I'm going to cut down my using, I'm going to cut down using drugs and I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to moderate how I do it. I'm going to party on the weekends or whatever. And it was this moment in my life that it was like, I tried to stop and I was like, right, I'm going to, I'm going to put it to the side. And like, actually my using just got progressively worse. It was like, it was wild. It was like this conscious decision to not do it. And then I was doing it like 10 X. It was like, I didn't think it could get worse, but it was, like, I was, I was sort of saying when I was chatting to one of my friends recently about it, it's like, it was like dieting, like fad diets, right? You're starting a diet on Monday. So you binge heavily for the weekend because your diet starting on Monday. And it was almost like that mentality. It was like, okay, it's going to stop on Monday. So I'm going to go harder. And actually Monday would come and get like two hours of sobriety and then go and have a beer and then it would be off and running again for another month, you know? And so I, I guess that was the biggest realization. It wasn't my rock bottom, but the biggest realization at the age of about 18, that I was an addict. Like I was all out, like I could not stop. And when I tried to stop, it got worse. And so that was the first time that I really realized as a young adult that I had a problem, like a significant problem before that. I didn't know. Um, I just thought I was like everybody else but I just chose to be wild because that was my persona and my identity how
1: much did it scare you coming to the realization that no matter what you did at that point you were you were addicted to the point where like you proved to yourself you
0: couldn't stop it yeah i mean it was it was it was petrifying right and i think the way that i dealt with the fear of it was just to use and so there was this like this sort of new emotional aspect of my addiction where i was like out of control i was trying to control it it was so scary that i couldn't that it just forced me to use to forget about it even more so this sort of like self-perpetuating cycle that just seemed like there was no end right and um i guess i was fortunate at the time it probably didn't seem fortunate but one evening i was out in a in a local town and I was sort of jumped by a group of guys. Like, one guy sort of walked past me in the street and barged into me with his shoulder. And I was, you know, I was drunk, I was using, I was out. And um, I sort of turned around and be like, what the fuck are you doing, mate? You know, as you do when you're in that world. And it was, and I'm just like, he was clearly looking for a fight. And, you know, he started on me and little did I know there was like seven of his mates around the corner and this is what they were looking for that you know they were looking for for trouble and you know i quite frankly i got the shit kicked out of me man i had all my teeth knocked out the bottom of my mouth my eye socket smashed my skull was cracked you know they they nearly killed me and um and that was that was like that was a moment that was a that was a proper moment in my life you know i i picked my teeth up off the pavement. I remember when they left me alone, I picked like four teeth up off the pavement, put them in my pocket, went to hospital. In hospital, they put the teeth back in my mouth and they said that the, the bone might reform or something like that if they put them back in my mouth. So I had these loose teeth that were sat on my nerve endings. I came out of hospital the next day. I couldn't close my mouth. You know, like my bite was on these teeth that were sat on my nerve endings. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. And man, my... The trauma that I endured with that specific event was 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 real for me. I'd never experienced anything like it. And I was I was petrified. I was scared of going out. And then this time, with the trauma of this event, my using just went up a notch again. And I was to the point where I was waking up in the morning, drinking, using drugs, like, before I'd even scratched my head, right? And, cr- you know, I remember I used to... Oh, it was such a... wow it's making me stress thinking about it um you know like waking up in the morning just so upset so sad so lonely like crying not wanting to use and just drinking and you know it just numbing everything and feeling like a sense of relief from getting away from it but this like this cycle man it was just it was wild and so after after i'd got attacked i probably spent two to three months where I was just waking up to drink to oblivion and I think it just like the reality of my situation was just real right it was just like there was no hiding from it and I was I was physically broken I was mentally broken I was you know I'd been in and out of hospital with liver related illnesses because of the extent that I was drinking and the doctors were like you know the last time I went in when I was having checkup actually for my face they were just like you're not well man you're not gonna you're not gonna be here in a year if you continue to do what you're doing and and so like mixture i think of being attacked the reality of this like groundhog day of using to oblivion and coming up for like brief moments of air mixed with like health challenges it was just like i'm just fucking done man (laughs) i'm like i'm out i'm tapping out that was, that was like the culmination of my bottom, my rock bottom.
1: After hitting rock bottom, Tom reached out to his mom, who had been waiting for the day that he was ready to make a change. Together, they researched a rehab facility in South Africa, far from the friends who Tom was afraid he might contact to escape the challenges of recovery. Tom says the program was transformative for him. Unlike other rehab programs he'd been to previously, this one focused on getting to the root of the addictive behaviors, and it was there that he finally committed himself to a life of sobriety. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll hear about how Tom started his wildly successful pizza oven business, so stay with us. And we're back. Before the break, Tom told the story of his struggles with drugs and alcohol and how hitting rock bottom was what finally drove him to seek help. And though he finally found a healthier way of living through rehab, he didn't have a strong idea of what was next for him. So you went to rehab, uh, you went through the program, and then upon leaving rehab, one of the things I understand from your story is that you had this feeling of being lost and i can imagine why you felt that like as you just mentioned a large part of why you drank and why you used was as a coping mechanism for your own you know pain or um lack of self-confidence and self-love but now that you no longer had this after rehab how did you how did you find a sense of
0: belonging a sense of community a, f- a sense of self-love yeah i mean you know couldn't couldn't be more right that sort of sense of community and purpose that addiction delivered to me was completely stripped from me right and coming out of treatment and even treatment treatment was an incredible process but it was a bubble, right? I was literally within four walls with counsellors, with other people. It wasn't the real world. Whilst it gave me the foundations, and I spent a long time in treatment, it was like the real work started on the outside, right? Like travelling back to England, being in the set, being on the same streets that I was when I was using, and having the same friends. And so, I'm not going to lie; it was like an incredibly vulnerable time for me. And where I was so young, Alex, I was. I was 21 years old when I came out of treatment and, you know, that's, there was like this core closer group of friends that I was using with. And then the the sort of wider group were just, just warming up to partying, right. And going out clubbing and doing all this stuff. And so that was really difficult. And so, uh, you know, when I, when I came out, I ignored the advice of the counselors and I was just like, I am not going to be the 21-year-old guy that's socially isolated, that's cut off from a world of normality because I choose not to drink or do drugs. So, you know, quite quickly, I was going out to drum and bass events. I was going out with my friends that were using drugs. And, you know, what a wild position to put myself in. It was just, you know, it was, you know, really stupid. And then I quickly realized, after two, three, four times doing it, it just wasn't fun being the sober guy out at a rave when everyone's like, hanging out their arse, getting drunk hanging off your shoulder telling you how inspirational you are because you're not getting smashed every three minutes of the night it was just like, oh my goodness get me out of here this is this is legit like the worst place i've ever been and so it didn't take long (laughs) for my sober clubbing days to end it was like it was very very short lived but there was a true sense of vulnerability and continuing on from that theme of not wanting to be socially isolated. I started entertaining friends in my backyard. We started doing barbecues, and I still didn't want to tell friends not to bring beers around and stuff like that. But truthfully, in the early days of my recovery, I was so vulnerable, and like even having alcohol around me was so difficult, but I didn't tell any of my friends that. But there was this amazing process that happened, right, about community. It was almost like um building a ritual around making food and cooking for people and entertaining it was like i i found it as like sort of sharing love you know like cooking for people feeding people you could share happiness and joy through food right and the ritual of preparing food and you know deciding what you're going to make going to do the shop I found it like therapeutic in the preparation and then I found that sense of community through feeding people it gave me purpose and it gave me a sense of belonging that I could be busy if I felt awkward or i felt vulnerable i could be like running around chopping this doing that and it sort of gave me a little bit of escapism from the situation the social situation whilst allowing me to be social and then one evening this was so poignant for me one evening i would cooked like a group of my closest friends pizzas and we made out i made dough i made all the toppings and we were like let's cook them in the conventional oven and there was something phenomenal around that because you know, I proved the dough, made the dough, and everyone stretched and opened their own pizza. We did a little YouTube tutorial, Jamie Oliver, a little video on how to make dough. And what sort of captured me was amazing is that everybody got involved. We all stood around the worktop in the kitchen, opened our pizzas. It was personal. You could customize it. You were proud of your creation. Put it in the oven. The, the downside was we cooked it in the conventional oven in the kitchen. They came out soggy. They weren't crispy. They were a bit shit. And whilst the process was really fun, the outcome was was not great and I literally said to my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife Laura I was just like we need a pizza oven for the garden that was legit like so fun and I was flat broke at the time man I was like laboring for a friend's business installing solar panels and Laura was just like you cannot buy a pizza oven for the house and I looked online and they were like three thousand pounds up for a kit importing a kit from Italy no one was doing them then And, um, I was like, wow, that's so expensive. So I sort of pitched to Laura that evening that we ate pizzas that I could do it for a couple of hundred pounds and I could build a brick oven and I was going to do it myself. And so literally the next morning, uh, six or 7am in the morning, I was out in the garden, digging foundations to, to build this plinth, to build my own pizza oven. What year, um, what year was that? That was 2009. So I went to rehab in 2007. I spent just shy of a year in rehab in South Africa. I sort of came out in 2008. I tried to move into doing property development. And then it was sort of 2009 that I threw myself into cooking and food. And then we built this pizza oven in the garden and it ended up costing me thousands of pounds. And my wife was pissed with me. She was like, you know, I said it was going to be a couple of hundred. We weren't cash rich. And I ended up spending probably about twelve, thirteen hundred pounds on building this. You now, I would love to say in this story that it was like this beautiful brick oven in the garden, but it was like horrendously ugly. But the most amazing thing happened lit the oven for the first time and saw a pizza cook in 60 seconds, you know, like we rolled out the dough, cooked a pizza next to the fire. And it was just like, holy shit. It was the most mesmerizing experience for me. Like it was so primal, right? It was like outdoors. It was sensory. It was connected to nature. The smell of smoke being in the fresh air, just detached me from reality. I forgot about life, forgot about my problems and just completely connected with the process of cooking with fire. But then the fucking magic was insane it was like we started throwing pizza sessions and out of nowhere all of my friendship group just stopped bringing beers and started bringing toppings like the oven captured everyone the oven captured everyone man and it was like it gave enough substance to our social environment that people didn't need to drink and it was like it was like sort of by divine wood-fired intervention that like alcohol gets stopped stopped (laughs) being brought around my house man it was it was insane and it just, it captured me, man. It was so poignant to my life. It was at a time of such vulnerability. We then built rituals around cooking with the oven. I literally cooked in the oven in my garden every night. And like two or three times a week, we would have friends over for pizzas. And it just completely changed my social dynamic. And it probably saved my life, man. It, it gave me purpose. It gave me a foundation for my recovery. It gave me a focus and a light. And it just, it changed everything.
1: So tell me how you go from that to ultimately making a, let's call it a good product available to the world so other people could kind of enjoy the magic that you were able to experience with your community.
0: Yeah. So um, I started getting requests from friends that were at the pizza events to build ovens in their parents' house. And so I built a couple of these handbuilt brick ovens. I'd improved the aesthetic by that point, so it was like, you know, it was something worth looking up by that point. <laughs> but quite quickly realized when I was building, I think my third oven in my brother-in-law's garden. I was building it at my sister's house for my brother-in-law. We were tiling his oven, and it was like, I have to share this with more people. This process of cooking with fire and community and connection and. it it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before the cooking was different, but also the way that people connected around it was different. And so Jeff said to me, he was just like, bro, like you, this this is, this is it for you. This is what you need to do. And it was like, and, and that was where the sort of light bulb moment happened. The penny dropped and quite quickly realized that building hand-built brick ovens that took me sort of a week to 10 days to build wasn't a, a scalable business for me. So I then threw myself into research around you know i researched every single company in the world selling a pizza oven i researched the material compositions of refractories i learned about refractory based aggregates and silica and alumina content in cement and i learned about how the porosity of clays made pizzas cook i just literally deep dive into it for like three four months threw myself in that was the one thing with me man it was like that's one thing i learned i'm dyslexic but If I'm a man on a mission with a keen interest to solve something, you know, I can read about the most boring topics in the world and be fascinated, you know, and that's essentially that was what I did. I threw myself into understanding how to produce products. And then, you know, after after three, four months of research, I'd sort of decided what the core fundamentals were for designing my first ever product. You know, it had to be able to be shipped from a from a supplier. I I knew the way I wanted it to look. I knew the way I wanted it to function. I got a five grand loan from my mum. And our first ever product was, it almost looked like it, it was it had a two-foot internal cooking space and it looked like a little concrete igloo. And that was basically it. I, I'd spent 2,000 pounds on a fiberglass mold, which you turned upside down. You filled it through the footprint of the oven, through the dome. And that was it. My Our first products were essentially a one piece sort of high heat concrete dome with a, with a two part base. And I found a manufacturer in the North of England that I'd asked if he would fill my molds for me. And he agreed to, he said that he would ship the products on a pallet to the customer. And so I built a fulfillment center in our spare bedroom. I started manufacturing the the sort of stainless steel doors for the ovens with a local fabricator, I was going down to a local hardware store, buying the handles for the doors and screwing each handle on individually to each door. It was real grassroots, you know? And I, I suppose at that point, I was so determined, so much, you know, conviction to do something, can build something, to protect my recovery, but also build purpose in my life and be successful, that I was just um, like fire was lit within me quite literally when I built that fire in the garden. And it was just, you know, it was, it was like my calling, man. It was my purpose.
1: In 2016, I believe it was, and maybe there was an earlier one, but the one I know about is in 2016, you did an Indiegogo campaign, raised a million bucks. Was that the moment? Was was your Indiegogo campaign the moment that you knew this could be like a very meaningful business or did that come later on? Yeah, so th-
0: that was like a turning point for the brand, right? We we built the Stonebake Oven Company before we'd got to Indiegogo with Rotbox, which was essentially the world's first ever portable stone oven, right? You know, like they didn't exist in the world until that point. And if you go online today, you know, there's hundreds of brands doing them. You know, and, and the, the innovation that we drove into a small, portable stone floored oven has changed the market entirely, which I'm super proud of. But yeah, we 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 had the Stonebake Oven Company, which were large concrete ovens, but I quickly realized that there was no scalability outside of the UK with them. They cost a fortune to ship. You know, you couldn't really ship them into Europe. Even though it made wood fried cooking accessible to the market, they were still heavy to install. And so I we then subsequently after the Stonebake Oven Company moved into the commercial sector and we built, I had an opportunity to supply a local hotel chain that's grown into a very big hotel chain now, a commercial wood-fired oven. And so we'd innovated in the space with commercial wood-fired ovens and then we became the UK market leader for professional wood-fired ovens. Always with this recipe, Alex, of incredible engineering. So the products were worked brilliantly, the highest quality on the market and the and the prettiest aesthetic, subjectively in my opinion, right? But whilst we were doing that, I saw an opportunity to deliver the wood-fired experience to the masses, make it even more accessible, right, than than the products that we made originally. And so we went on a journey to design a product that could get delivered to your doorstep in a box that you could take out that you could fire up quickly in 20 minutes and have the same wood-fired experience without necessarily the hassle of having to build a fire or know how to interact with fire. And so the idea for Rockbox was born in sort of 2012, 2013. And then we spent three years developing it to make it work like a professional oven. Core challenge that you've got with with any portable lightweight stone oven is the way stone ovens work is they absorb heat from a fire. They store that heat and they re-radiate it, which is why they stay hot. And when you're trying to design a product that's got to be less than sort of 45 pounds you don't have the ability to have a ton of thermal mass built within the product. So it took us a while to make the product truly perform like a stone oven. But yeah, when we launched on Indiegogo, we had sort of sub $5,000 budget for launching. And we had a $100,000 target um, when we launched it. We hit that in six hours when we launched on Indiegogo. And then within four days, we'd done $600,000 in sales. Within the month, we did $1.2 million in sales. It was crazy success and it started a movement and it was was wild, man. The business, at that, that very moment, the business was transformed to a, it was almost like a cottage industry business in the UK to then being like, shit, we've got the ability to seriously disrupt the outdoor cooking market to build a global brand. And it was like, it was a real moment for me and for the business.
1: Let's just paint a picture. When you're in your late teens, you know, you're know you in the throes of, of addiction. You've just been in that fight with this group of guys. You've picked your teeth up off the ground. You've gone to the hospital. Let's say you're sitting in the waiting room in the hospital. And now the Tom of today, so you right now, Go and sit next to yourself that's sitting in the hospital in that moment, and you feel lost. You feel self conscious. You don't know what your abilities are. What would you say to yourself that's sitting right next to you?
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sixty-four million dollar question, right? Um, <laughs> do you know? Do you know? Do you know what? You know. I know. I pause, but just three words that really resonate with me and my mum shared them with me when I was a kid and she's always empowered me and it's something that I truly believe in now that absolutely anything is possible right no matter what vision that you have you can do anything that you set your mind to and I think for me going from addiction to getting clean to building an oven to building a business to building my family and having such a rich emotionally rich life now knowing that you can do anything that you set your mind to and inspiring someone for change, I think is interesting. I thought I was shit at everything when I was young. I just thought I was shit. And, and so having self-belief to be able to go out and think anything is possible. And if I want to build a business, I can. It doesn't matter about my qualifications. doesn't matter about pieces of paper that signify that I've done something. That shit helps, right? It helps you shortcut and it helps you learn stuff that makes the journey a bit easier. But it doesn't mean you can't do it because you haven't got those. And then the ability to speak out and get help and be heard, I think is is really important. And that was really the reason recently that I've shared my story. And it's the reason that I'm on this podcast, right? Like and it's it's the reason that people like you exist with your missions to remove like the stigmatism of being able to speak out and to protect yourself and be able to build a future. So I would say um sharing when you're vulnerable sharing when you're fucked sharing when you can't cope you know trying to drive change like opening your mouth and saying that i'm not okay is like completely okay right and um taking that first big step to drive change i think is something that i probably wish i'd done sooner um when i was when i was in the throes of addiction
1: tom gosney thank you so much for joining imposters thanks man Today, Tom says that his passion for his business, the importance he places on spending time with his family, and staying active and healthy are all invaluable for helping him to remain sober and happy. But to me, perhaps the most powerful takeaway from Tom's story is that amazing things can happen when you let yourself be vulnerable, admit weakness, and seek help. Now, imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked, where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple, we wanna make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex@morningbrew.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Vallabhaneni and Makila Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Greg Jacobs is our video producer and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler.